The Hogs are going to Omaha. Oh, intermission. No, it's halftime. You can actually feel Razorback Stadium shaking underneath our feet right now. You just got to keep living, man. L-I-V-I-N. Arkansas wins the national championship. What I say when it comes to this basketball team is the law. Absolutely and without discussion. I have been trying to get you together with Ty. Trackouts are boring. Besides that, they're fascist. Throw some ground balls. More democratic. This is the Halftime Podcast, presented by Jeff's Clubhouse. All right, so I mean, what is one of the topics across college sports that is t- that is spoken about, that is asked about, almost uh, twelve months out of the year? And it was something that Greg Sankey, SEC commissioner, addressed when he was first asked about realignment and SEC media days. Ty, you were there listening to his his uh, his first his speech and his address to the media, and then the questions came. I don't remember if it was uh, the first question that was asked, but it was certainly one of the earlier questions that was asked, because realignment is the sort of thing that uh, that completely changes the college sports landscape. I mean, you just look at the last time that the SEC has grown, and at least in football, it has not meant very good things to Arkansas with the uh, with the introduction of Missouri and Texas A and M. Uh, I saw, you know, what did what did Greg Sankey say? Answer about it. He said at one point it was on the back burner. Now, what did he say? It's in the kitchen, kitchen cupboard. cupboard. Yeah, kitchen. What did you say? Cupboard. I think he said kitchen cupboard. Right. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it's this is the northern southern thing. Cupboard cupboard. Is it? What's how? How am I supposed to say it? I've never heard of a cupboard. I think I've only you're heard right. of a cupboard. I think I'm dumb. I'm sorry. That's <laughs> what's the uh, what's the uh, what's that movie as a kid that I watched? I think it was the uh, the little Indian in the cupboard. There's this movie. Yes, that, I remember you know what I'm talking movie. about? Yeah. yeah, I'm stupid. I had a brain fart there, so I'm I'm just looking at it how it would sound. That's that's not. You how had it a dumb moment. I, yeah. I'd say what? That's one of the most hey, honest moments in this show's history, right? Can there, I say Ty? blonde moments since I have blonde hair? You are blonde. Does that work? Yeah. Okay. And it doesn't work for. It doesn't matter if you're man or woman. I mean, you can, you can all have a blonde moment, exactly. and then you can be like me and just have a bald moment and just forget what it is that you were talking about anyway. So we had Chuck Oliver on Phil during SEC media days last week. And one of the questions I asked him was about the college football playoff potential expansion. If he thought Bill Hancock and his crew would expand that before. And he actually pointed us in a completely different direction in the topic we're about to get into that. He thinks realignment is what the conferences, the coaches and everyone else is gearing up for when these contracts go out. Well, and, and you know, there's like a a uh, almost expansion, not expansion, where realignment occurs almost every six years. I mean, it, it's been when when was the last round of of realignment? I think that was when TCU uh, and Utah got out of uh, the Mountain West. TCU tried to be a Big East school for a year, and then goes to the Big Twelve. The Big Twelve, of course, was looking into uh, expansion. Uh, they had all of those. All those uh, candidates parade through. I think it was Houston when they were talking about some of these schools like Memphis and uh, other universities, and then they decided to just sit pat. Um, and 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 now you're kind of at a point where uh, it's almost expected that there will be changes in the conference landscape, and a lot of it's because of television deals. I mean, this is where... Uh, this is where so much of the money is coming in. And, I mean, let's be honest. You can say realignment is about getting universities that are similar in scope and similar in prestige or similar in the way they treat academics and athletics at the same time. But a lot of it is really just about a geographic footprint of eyes to television sets. And even in today's age, it's different than just the TV sets. It's it's about It's about getting... Uh, all the rights that you can possibly get, not just for football, but for basketball, baseball, Olympic sports, everything else into one package and then you, know, you make it part of a package for a cable network or in some cases just an app. Uh, it's really, uh, and, and this seems to work together, maybe a tie in the context of, of, um, of the idea of, of four leagues eventually all coming together for super leagues but you know an interesting article written by Stuart mandel who uh, not just as uh, the editor of the athletic uh, but also as the founder uh, of the athletic and and he presents some pretty interesting scenarios about the future of college sports realignment and i will say i think that there's a, the, the case to be made that the only thing that is holding back 
realignment from actually happening right now or even some more drastic measures being taken in just a football sense and leaving the other sports alone is March Madness. You know, March Madness makes so much money for the NCAA in a way that, that college football can't because the NCAA is not part of the college football playoff. They don't own the bowls in the way that they own the, the NCAA tournament. So, I mean, there's these two things, it's kind of a, it's tough to put them all together because it feels like they're at odds. But there are some interesting scenarios that he got to there, which also leads to the idea of, uh, of uh, expansion from the Pac-12 and the Big 12, possible expansion out of the SEC, seeing a league go away completely, or even just seeing... All of the leagues go away completely, and and one of the most interesting ideas he had was 64 schools banding together to form essentially like a major league of college football, broken into four different divisions. And oh, by the way, Arkansas is one of the schools on this list, so they're not one of the ones that Mandel left out. He does view Arkansas as a brand name in college football, but the and this is something that the athletic is getting into in many many different ways. We've seen stories about how. Texas A&M joined the SEC and everything that went into that uh, stories uh, that really get to the heart at, at where this realignment started a few years back and now where it is moving. But it does lead you to believe, Ty, that there will be realignment amongst the college leagues sometime in the next, what do you think, four to five years? I'd say that's probably a, a good book into where it's going to end up. And I'd, I wonder how many SEC fans particularly would be okay with that because I think, and maybe this is just my personal opinion kind of coming out, but I think SEC fans are pretty happy. Now, I know there's the likes of Auburn who don't like playing Georgia every year, Tennessee who don't like playing Alabama every year. There's certain divisions like Arkansas fans wishes wish they were in the East even though they're clearly a West if you were going to like be in the divisions and whatnot. But this would be a very interesting move if this was to happen and i i don't know the repercussions i don't know everything that would come out of it but it definitely is on it's not on the back burner phil it's it's getting cooking right now that doesn't mean it's going to come out a finished product and like we think it will but it's definitely a huge part of the ongoing process right now i guarantee you greg sankey herb vincent dunlap and all those guys in the sec are constantly talking about this on a weekly basis like this is the SEC, they do two things really well. They're out in front of the things they need to be out in front of, and then they also wait. They play the wait-and-see game, kind of with the alcohol theme, with the SEC network, as profitable as it is. It wasn't the first network launched for a conference. They they are very good about playing both sides of the card, which is hard to do sometimes because a lot of times you want to be out in front of things. Other times you want to play the wait-and-see to see the cons of whatever the other conferences or the other people do in front of you you want to be able to do better than that so this is this is an interesting process that's going to fold out these next couple of years phil well and again arkansas is not in the position that they were when you know the southwest conference was was ready to break up and really arkansas leaving that conference was the impetus to it to it completely dissolving and in that case arkansas i think they wanted to get away from texas and wanted to get uh, away from the influence of a Longhorn-dominated conference, much in the same way that Texas A&M wanted to get away from Texas and the idea of a Longhorn network and really being... It's like, ask, a, ask a former Texas A&M president about being, quote-unquote, little brother to the University of Texas, just like uh, Will Muschamp was asked that about Clemson at SEC Media Days. You probably would have gotten the same answer. And, in, and you know, I think Carolina has a much more difficult case to make than, than Texas A&M did in the, far, in the case of being a little brother to a school that's nearby in, in terms of scope and size and even success on the football field now. Um, but uh, but Arkansas is is in a safe place. I mean, this is the SEC. For now, let's go and put that in there. For now, they keep being where they are last year. That 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 safe hiding spot you thought you were in could go away very quickly, Phil. Well, I don't see Arkansas ever being kicked out of of where they are. You know, I mean, they. I, I think it's 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 un, it's understood. It feels to me to be understood, especially when I'm looking at this 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 idea that Mandel had of what he calls the college football premier league which he calls a hypothetical 2018 league where arkansas is one of the schools i mean the missouri's not in this premier league you know and and they're out of the sec right there they are not viewed as one of the 28 brand names 
in college football. You know, and, and perhaps you know there are other schools that maybe you would think would be on there that that aren't either. But uh, South Division has Arkansas with Alabama, Auburn, Georgia, LSU, South Carolina, and Tennessee. I mean, it sounds like schools you'd be pretty interested in playing every year, uh, and and Arkansas is is on that list. I, I I couldn't see Arkansas getting left out of of uh, of uh, of a major league, and they're already in one, you know, in the SEC right now. So I think that the fact that they're there and the, the level of success in football, nonetheless, I don't think that's a reason why they'd be booted out because the eyes are there, the donors are there, the importance of. Arkansas athletics across this state is there. And, I mean, say what anybody wants to say about a, a small rural state and a lack of dollars, so to speak, but uh, the fact that the university athletic department makes so much money anyway, I think kind of speaks for itself. But the uh, the changes are coming over the coming years, um, and and it's going to change the college football landscape, and that's the reason why the changes are made, because of college football. The other sports just have to adjust you know i mean it it's not going to matter to let's say that for some reason the pac-12 expands like they wanted to initially nine years ago and texas and oklahoma both end up going to an expanded pac-12 and become the pac-16 i mean let's look at it oklahoma and texas are going to be going somewhere together they will they're too they mean too much to each other in terms of football rivalry to not and if oklahoma goes somewhere oklahoma state's going to follow them right behind and they, that means maybe a texas tech ends up going to a pack 16 with texas as well and they don't mind traveling to oregon for football they don't mind traveling to washington for football every couple of years or every three or four years but they probably would have a little issue with trying to schedule travel and the money that goes into it and just the the idea of sending volleyball and swimming and tennis and golf and basketball and baseball and softball up to those locations as well. You know, I mean, the money that is made eventually becomes money that is spent. So the, the geographic footprint that a lot of these leagues are getting to, maybe it seems like it could be a little bit unrealistic just because of, of travel concerns. Was it UCLA, the Board of Regents, or some of their alums that were pushing was it to join the ACC? I saw a story the other a couple days ago about that that I thought was kind of interesting for them to get out of the Pac-12 and join another conference, and I'm pretty sure it was the ACC, if I remember that correctly. And you think about the travel plans, yes, the college football revenue makes so much money, so those expenses wouldn't be that big of a deal, Phil, but the smaller sports that we know are not profitable – that's a big deal, and from a revenue standpoint, you don't know how many athletic directors would be okay with that. Now, if they made that money back up in football, you can maybe, but I don't know if that discrepancy would be there. But from just a pure excitement standpoint, I mean, let's let's look at Arkansas's division, Phil. Let's go and read that off what Stuart Mandel at The Athletic put. Alabama, Arkansas, Auburn, Georgia, LSU, South Carolina, and Tennessee in the South Division. I mean, from a college football standpoint, to see them play. I know that Arkansas ranks below probably every single one of those teams except for being close with that South Carolina, and that's awesome. And to see Ohio State play some just stud teams like Wisconsin, Notre Dame, Nebraska, Michigan State, Michigan, I mean, I know those are big 10 teams, a couple plus the Notre Dame game. I mean, these are, these are some fun divisions, Phil, that would be great for college football, but as you mentioned, you, you can't let it affect the other sports, even though it it would, it might. We'll see how they would do that. So I, I'm. There's so many different scenarios that are probably boggling on through all the uh, the big wigs head when it comes to making these decisions. I'm sure that they're they're trying to balance out and decide what they're going to ultimately end up doing in a couple of years because it's a big decision awaiting them for sure. You know what I think a, a big realignment would do? It, it would force every school to then add probably a ninth conference game. I mean, I think is what you're looking at rather than the eight that a couple of the leagues are working with now, including the SEC. And it was Childers last week, Phil, that said they won't do that until they, they won't. He didn't think they would realign until they added a ninth conference game. I think it was him that said that when he had him on the program last week. Well, other ideas of, uh, you know, massive independence in college football, which used to be a thing. I mean, uh, you forget Penn State was uh, was an independent when they won a national championship in 1988. Florida State was an independent. Notre Dame continues to be uh, the only uh, successful independent year in, year out, although Army West Point, I think, is, is kind of showing that they can do it too. 
But what about the idea of like uh, of like a USC going independent? Because I mean, let's be honest. When it comes to the Pac-12, USC and potentially Oregon are the ones that draw the most eyes, and USC by far. You know, it's the same with the Big 12 in Texas and Oklahoma. It's the same with the SEC and Alabama and LSU, really, that draw more eyes than, than anybody else. You know, and, but the SEC remains one of those leagues that shares revenue equally um, when it comes to the television contract. The Big 12 does not. The Pac-12 does. So, I mean, this some of the some of the conversation ends up making your your head spin round and round, but it also does make you realize that there is a giant pot of money uh, for college football, and the fact that it's become, in a lot of people's eyes, the second most popular sport in the country to only the NFL, uh, that there's potentially a, an, an ability to make even more money. You know, I saw in this article that Mandel wrote, think about the idea of a college athletics league getting money from investors to grow and that is the pac-12 is looking potentially in raising 750 million dollars from private equity firms in order to grow which which in that case if you're bringing in investment that means you're expected to deliver return on investment so then you're taking i mean we know that these are businesses you know that are that are under the umbrella of educational departments in a sense i mean these conferences air quotes around educational departments yes these these conferences represent educational institutions athletic arms and but they make money they make money for the suits that sit in the offices in each of the in each of the conferences for ESPN and the television partners, and they're expected now. If you're going to go to a private equity firm and get money from them, you're expected to make a lot of money for those people. One way to do that: grow the league. I think the Pac-16. We make fun of the Pac-12 a lot now because they've disappeared on the national scene in football, in basketball, but the Pac the Pac-12 that's going to end up being one of the one of the drivers behind realignment as they were you know when they were going after texas and going after oklahoma they didn't get the schools they wanted what did they get they got utah and colorado but they're going to go after the big fish they got to i mean marcus mariota and oregon is really the last team and it is the last team in the college football playoff to make any noise and bill often refers he doesn't call it power five anymore he calls it the power four conferences because they have really been quite irrelevant in basketball and football these last couple of years. And I know Oregon also made it to the Final Four a couple of years ago in college basketball, but it's it's not really that. It hasn't been that consistent with teams coming out of the conference. And you think about the top dog in that conference, that's USC. Bill, what's USC been doing lately? Jack, they haven't done anything. They're, the wondering only, about who the next coach is going to be. Exactly. The only headlines that have come out of USC is when are they going to fire Clay Helton and when is Matt Leinard and Reggie Bush going to push their – co-worker urban meyer on the fox sports set to take the usc job that's basically what's been happening with that program right now and so when you're when you're blue blood not only a it's it's not as big a deal with college football because you got bama you got ohio state you got michigan I mean, there's a lot of blue bloods that are they're doing great but when your blue blood for your conference ain't doing anything for you that's going to hurt the overall aspect like the overall part of the league and that's exactly and i say league i mean conference and that's exactly what's happening with the pac-12 right now they basically become an irrelevant power five conference when it comes to basketball and football now not in baseball because we know that all too well but in terms of those two sports and those are the two most popular sports in college right now you got to be on the you got to have sin teams to the championships, you got to send teams to the playoffs. You got to get them in the final four, and they just simply haven't been doing that. I wonder if eventually, this is something I want to ask Aaron Torres. We have Aaron coming on later on in this hour. If he could ever see a scenario where college football separates itself from all the other sports, and where you might have, you know, an SEC, a Big Twelve, a Pac twelve for basketball, baseball, and the Olympic sports, and everything else, the college football kind of separates itself off of that idea into something different and in some ways you feel like they already have because the ncaa does all of the championships for every other sport except for football i mean they even do a championship for equestrian and for rodeo there's there's no ncaa championship for football it's the college football playoff which is a separate entity it is a private entity 
Jeff Taylor and his staff over at Jeff's Clubhouse has a fantastic catering service, and they can almost cater up to any size. Give them a call today at 479-308-9123, or check them out on Facebook, or visit online at theclubhousefs.com. Now back to the Halftime Pod. Let's go. We're in this era now where uh, Major League Baseball teams, NFL teams, uh, college football teams, too, everybody that wears a uniform wants to do something that's retro. Uh, what did we see recently? The, the Cincinnati Reds have worn those sleeveless jerseys from uh, the late 50s uh, quite a bit. They're, they're getting very, very popular, in fact. The Pirates just put together a, 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 an anniversary of the 1979 World Series championship team by wearing uniforms from that year. The Phillies even wore uniforms from that year as well because they used to wear the powder blue jerseys on the road, and they wore them for that game too. Ty, do you like powder blue? Uh, powder blue doesn't work in football, I'd say. I think it works nicely in basketball, although don't ever tell North Carolina that that's the the color that they're wearing baseball baby blues powder blues used to look really good and they used to be pretty popular are you uh do you have an, uh, an opinion on uh, the powder blues that sometimes you see i think the royals the phillies the cardinals used to wear them even the cubs had a powder blue no no no, no team actually does that routinely now so i have a powder blue Kansas City Royal Bo Jackson jersey that I really am enthralled with, but it's kind of been a bad taste in my mouth ever since Ole Miss has donned them these last couple oh, years. Right. And so when they do that, when I can't be in the same cahoots as the Ole Miss Rebels baseball team, that's just that doesn't compute, Phil. We can't we can't like the same things. And you think about how cocky they were about, oh, we don't lose in these powder blue uniforms in the postseason. Sure enough, Arkansas beats them. 2-1 in that Super Regional absolutely just gives them the business, the last game of the uh, Super Regional. So I, it's hard for me because a lot of Ole Miss fans, not only the powder boot baseball, but you see a lot of their students don those colors. So that it's hard. Can I like can I like it but not be a fan of liking it because there's so many Ole Miss kids and alums that wear that exact same color? I think you can separate, you know, the, from the likes and the despises, you know, in this it's case. A combination. You can like all the other ones while hating the Ole Miss ones at the same time. These things can work in tandem. Okay, cool. But what do you think about the idea of a burgundy jersey? You know the color burgundy? That yeah, was my old, uh, my old Hyundai was burgundy. Did you ever see me drive my old 2005 Hyundai XG350? I it was. think I... Did you drive it around town proudly, or did you drive it around, you know, kind of pulling the hat over your your head a little bit? I like that car, but it ended up costing me a little bit in terms of repairs and stuff. So I'm I'm very happy with the new car I got from Harry Robson Buick GMC, and it's a lot better than my old one. But it was it was just an old grandpa car. My late grandfather drove it, and then I uh, accepted it with open arms. And it's just the color just is not exactly appealing. I mean, it's burgundy, maroon kind of that same atmosphere in terms of colors it's just not you don't just you're you're not wowed by it you know what i mean yeah you're not wowed by it and certainly when the philadelphia phillies wore burgundy jerseys for one game may 19th 1979 they they debuted what were supposed to be worn every single saturday for the rest of that season and i'm sure philly's uh, ownership at that point was figured hey we'll be wearing these every saturday till kingdom come they they dubbed these burgundy uniforms the saturday night special uh, now remember burgundy is, is sort it's a really dark uh rich red with a little bit of purple feeling it was like purple and red mixed together and and they wore them once just once and they lost that bat that uh, baseball game but that's not the reason that they never wore them anymore they, the, the phillies absolutely despised these jerseys uh greg luzinski who was a power hitting first baseman for philadelphia in the 70s who was known as the bull he said as he and every other one of the phillies in 1979 on this day Took their uniforms off after the loss, threw them into the into a pile in the middle of the Veteran Stadium home clubhouse, and said in unison, "We will never wear these uniforms again." Luzinski, in fact, declared to Rudy Ruley Carpenter, who was the owner of the Phillies, "You're either going to trade me, or I'm never playing in these uniforms ever again." He said, "I look like a grape in these uniforms," <laughs> and they never wore them again until Saturday. The Phillies are going to be wearing these jerseys, not just jerseys. I mean, they are red. They are burgundy 
uh, jersey tops and pants. So, I mean, you are really, you're, you're becoming the color, uh, essentially, is what it comes down to when the Phillies host Atlanta at, uh, at the, at the ballpark on Saturday. I would love to be there. And, you know, I really like the, the throwback uniforms. I mean, we've talked quite a bit about how much, not just we, but everybody else across the natural state seems to really be digging these, uh, these retro jerseys from, I mean, really, how retro is 13 years ago, but it is retro. Not as retro as 40 years ago when you wore a uniform once, got your tails kicked by the Chicago Cubs, apart by the Montreal Expos. Yeah, the Phillies lost the Expos in that game. That makes it retro when it's a baseball team that doesn't exist anymore. I would just love to see these these uniforms in action, and I bet you they wear them more than just one time. I just don't get the the intent of bringing these uniforms back after, and I know the, the players are not the same players that they are today, there's a difference between bringing beloved uniforms back, bringing uniforms but from beloved teams back. But when you do this, just just doesn't make a lot of sense, Phil. Based on the story you just told me, it doesn't seem like the former Philly players, and I'm just going to go under the assumption that the current Philly players want to wear these uniforms. So why do it? Why do it at all? I know there's there's combination, color combinations that not every team member is a fan of, but when you have in unison a team declaring we will never wear these again and then I know it's way down the road but I'm wondering how enthralled these current Philadelphia players are to putting on these uniforms because it doesn't seem like and I know there's generational the generational gap that we have all the time but I don't think Maroon has transcended generations I don't think people liked it then and I don't think people really like it now you know one really interesting aspect of these of these uniforms too they're they're zippered jerseys. I've never seen this in, in professional this sports, really. This is just really. weird now, man. It's, it is getting really weird because in the 70s and in the 80s, you had a lot of just pullover baseball jerseys. The button-ups became popular again, I think, in the in the 1990s. Uh, and, and, and these Phillies uniforms, they actually did have these zippered uniforms in the 70s. So they are zip-down, zip-up unis, which makes them unique, too. So uh, I don't know what the players think about them now. Maybe it depends on whether they win or lose. You mentioned your trip to Pittsburgh. My first FOMO will be that a fact I've never been to Pittsburgh. You, our mutual friend Max Hers, apparently it's a pretty cool place. Great sports town. You got the Pirates. You got the uh, and I'm gonna the Penguins. The the Steelers. Obviously, I've never been to Heinz Field. I've seen it a lot of different times. That would be a really cool atmosphere, I think, to attend. I've never had is it Pramani Brothers, Pramani Brothers, Pramani Brothers, Pramani that's Brothers. Right. I've never. You're, it's funny. I had a couple of friends that were in Pittsburgh last week that are St. Louis Cardinals fans. One that's from St. Louis, and then uh, Steve Owens, who listens to our show quite a bit. He's the voice of UCA baseball and women's basketball, and is a longtime Cardinals fan. They were both at the same game, not together, but I'm getting separate texts from each of them as they're driving to the stadium. Where should I go? Are there are there statues to look at? Which Pramantes should I eat at? I mean, these are the questions that. I think any Pittsburgher that's in the so-called Pittsburgh diaspora, like myself, will get when any of our friends travel to the Berg. So, yeah, Ty, I mean, I can tell you where to go now, but I think I should actually just wait until you get there and then tell you where to go. Is there anything else that I need to just get to look forward to when I eventually make a trip up to Pittsburgh, or as you and so many others call it, the Berg? The first thing you'll do is when you come into the city, you'll land in the airport, and then you'll 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 get in a car and you'll you'll ride on the parkway, and the the most famous, maybe one of the most famous quote unquote entrances for a city is is coming through the Fort Pitt tunnels right b- before you go over the Fort Pitt bridge, and the Fort Pitt b- bridge is going to take you over the Allegheny Monongahela River and take you right over downtown. So I mean, you get this; it's like you burst through the tunnel, and there's the city skyline with these three rivers and this incredible panorama all around you it's a stunning moment but make sure you're not driving at that time because you're also going 65 to 70 miles an hour over a bridge over a major river and so you don't want your head on a swivel at that moment cool i'll I'll keep that in mind but yeah i i got a little fomo that you'll be in the uh the burg this weekend i'll be back actually i'll be going up to fayetteville tomorrow and I'll, I'll have a good time there. But I, I do eventually want to make uh, my trip up with northeast. That would be the, the term, right? It's definitely northeast. It's the northeast-ish. It's the Rust Belt. It's kind of in the middle. Of, it, it's the end of the, the northeast, what belt? the start of the Midwest. It's called the Rust Belt. Cities like Buffalo, Cleveland, Columbus, 
Pittsburgh, Akron, all around, you know, that sort of Great Lakes-ish area, Detroit. The reason it's called the Rust Belt is the idea that there are a lot of rusted-out factories okay. uh, in those cities, uh, although... <laughs> It doesn't really tell you the things that are going on in Pittsburgh these days. It's not really a rusted over city anymore. I'm looking at the skyline right now. It's it's pretty. Stunning. It's pretty, man. It's it really good, is good looking. Is. Good looking hometown, dude. It is an absolutely stunning place. All right. So um, I told you before we got on the air today. I, I think for some reason, and maybe at the age of 42, I just have trouble sleeping. Uh, I wake up routinely at 3 a.m. Not 2:55. Not 3:05. 3 a.m. And I did last night, maybe in excitement for this for this trip that I'm taking later on today. Uh, but at three o'clock, my my instinct is to do what you got to do at three o'clock when you get out of bed, and then you know I'll grab the phone, I'll look at Twitter, and, and bore myself to sleep. But at three a.m. Central Time, as I'm scrolling on Twitter, people are reacting to a Major League Baseball game in Anaheim, California, that is still being played which would have made it 4 o'clock Eastern time. And I wonder how many Orioles fans were actually staying up to watch a 32-win, 69-loss team. Uh, but there they were, and uh, both teams scored runs in the ninth inning to force extra innings. You had five consecutive scoreless extras after that. The Orioles scored three in the top of the 15th. The Angels answered with three in the bottom of the 15th. Almost scored the winning run, in fact, but... Dominic Fletcher's brother, David Fletcher, was thrown out on a very close play at home plate that had to be reviewed. So then Baltimore does score two more runs at the top of the 16th inning and take themselves a 10-8 to lead. Jonathan VR hit the home run to give them the lead. So the inning before, Baltimore had, uh, had Tan Scott... Uh, on the pitcher's mound, and he just couldn't find the, the, the strike zone. He walked three batters. He gave up the three-run lead. And so they decide at this point to go to Stevie Wilkerson, not out of the bullpen, out of center field. Stevie Wilkerson had pitched in a couple of other games this year, but never in a close ball game. I mean, we love when position players pitch in baseball because it's a joke. I mean, Austin Romine was on the mound yesterday for the Yankees when the Red Sox were crushing them, and you just kind of get a laugh at that. By the way, it did snap off a nice-looking curveball. Um, but Stevie Wilkerson incredibly retires three batters in a row, and there's some good hitters, by the way. One of them uh, was Cole Calhoun, who had driven in three runs in the ball game and is a good power hitter. He gets two outs. There's nobody on base. The Orioles leading by two. Future Hall of Famer Albert Pujols walks up to the plate and pops out to short center field. Stevie Wilkerson became the first position player ever to record a save as a statistic. That stat has been kept since 1969. That isn't to say that a position player didn't close a game and actually would have earned a save before 1969. It just wouldn't have been recorded as a save. Still in all, 1969 is 50 years ago. No position player has done this. Stevie Wilkerson did this without throwing a single pitch faster than 60 miles an hour. I mean, I thought velocity was supposed to be tantamount to success as a pitcher. I was keen, dude. I guess so. Stevie Wilkerson threw 14 pitches. None of them would have gotten him pulled over on the freeway. He was literally lobbing the ball to home plate because a guy that's a center fielder is going to have a good throwing arm. Mike Trout just threw a ball 98 miles an hour from center I field a couple of days ago. Yeah. Right. Center fielders have good throwing arms. Stevie Wilkerson, and I've never seen him play before, but I'm going to tell you he probably has a hose. But he decides to just lob it up there, whatever he needs to do to get over the plate. Uno, dos, tres, heroic. And historic save. And, oh, by the way, Baltimore still sucks. They're 33-69. and 69. So, Phil, on that note, I actually watched a highlight video yesterday on YouTube. It just popped up on my timeline of pitchers pitching under 60 miles per hour. And it was just these crazy curveballs that, like, took weird directions and were so slow. And I kid you not, I don't think I saw a single hit from any of the batters because it's such a weird, odd pitch. And I don't think it was... 100% all curveballs, but when you're seeing 90, 80, even upper 70s, and all of a sudden you go below 60, it's like it's coming at you like a snail, and of course you're going to whiff on it. It's a hard, and you know this better than I do, playing baseball. 
Well, I mean, there are change-ups, and then there are change-ups against change-ups. You know what I mean? Like a good change-up is going to be, let's say you throw 90, a good change-up's at 80. But then there's the, the triple change-up of like 55 miles an hour. And this these were not EFIS pitches, which is a baseball term that doesn't get thrown around very much. The EFIS uh, is is more than just a lob. I mean, it's throwing the, a pitch straight up in the air, kind of like a softball uh, slow pitch straight up in the air and have it come down at such an angle that the batter practically has no chance to make contact on it. Rip Sewell's the one that invented this pitch in the 1950s because he shot himself in his foot and he couldn't throw a pitch a normal way any longer. So Pascal Perez threw a couple of these pitches. There's been some major league pitchers that dig in an EFIS every once in a while. But this guy was just lobbing it up. I mean, it was like he, he might have, he, he should have just been underhanding it, you know, just like setting it on a tee for these major league hitters, including a Hall of Famer in Albert Pujols. This is Baseball just makes you shake your head and cry sometimes. All right, so you've done two baseball ones. I'll go ahead and kick it off with my first one. Benny Baseball against the Yankees last night. Three for five with an RBI, three runs scored. This is the most lopsided win in this rivalry for the Boston Red Sox. 19-3 to they won this game versus the Yankees in Fenway Park. Masahiro Tanaka, Phil, he gave up 12 earned runs in an inning. The second most by a pitcher in any game since the EARA became official for the Yanks. Pretty incredible. Apparently this guy does not bode well when he faces off against the Red Sox, but I get a little FOMO that I didn't see the New York Yankees just get clobbered because I'm not a Red Sox fan. Obviously, I'm going to pull for Andrew Benatendi, but just to see this game last night and how it ended, that would have been a, a fun sight to see last night. Well, I mean, seven runs in the first inning, five runs in the fourth inning, and a couple of the position players did get out there and pitch. So, yeah, that, that seems to be a theme on our uh, on our FOMO stuff today. By the way, I also saw that was the Yankees' first visit to, to Fenway Park all year long, which just doesn't seem right. It's a little July. late. What is, yeah, it's a lie. What is it? October's coming up? Jeez Louise. That also probably means, you know, the major league schedules know what they're doing. Yeah, you're going to have some Yankees-Red Sox games during pennant race time. Although, you know, looking at the standings, New York's got a nine-and-a-half game lead over second-place Tampa. Boston's ten games out. Boston's coming on, though. I saw with yesterday's uh, performance, they have taken over the major league lead in runs scored. So, I mean, they, they still have the sort of lineup that can compete with anybody. Got the bats, man. And we always talk about pitching and how important it is. But uh, the way that hitters are going this year and people are complaining about the new baseball, it, it might help if you're the – the best hitting team at the majors. So I'm going to stick with baseball for uh, for another FOMO here, and it deals with another Yankee, actually a former Yankee, who is now a Texas Longhorn. Uh, Troy Tulowitzki, uh, who had been one of the best shortstops in the game during his time with Colorado, but just couldn't stay off the injured list uh, with Toronto, and he missed all of last year. He signed a free agent contract with the Yankees. More is just a uh, kind of a a shot in the dark for New York if uh, if they would be able to figure out a way for Tulowitzki to show some of the uh, things that he did when he was I mean, literally one of the best players in the game for a good six, seven-year stretch. But uh, it was been on the injured list practically the entire season, only five games played for Tulowitzki, and he promptly retired yesterday. And then he signs to be a volunteer assistant coach with the Texas Longhorns. This is now the second time in a week that a former Major League All-Star decides to uh, go to a college program, a high-profile college program, and join as a volunteer assistant. Uh, Although Matt Holliday has already been retired for more than a year uh, when he signed on to work for his brother Josh as a volunteer assistant. And now Tulowitzki is going to do the same thing for the Texas Longhorns. Although he is from California, he did not play at Texas. He played at, uh, at Long Beach. I don't really know what he's got to do with the Texas Longhorns, but he's going to try to dig him out of a 27 and 27 season. I find it interesting, you know, that major league guys who don't need the money are are now signing to be volunteer assistants with high level profile, high profile, and high performing uh, college baseball programs just a couple of months after the whole hullabaloo and the and the the displeasure and the anger that came from a lot of coaching staffs when when college baseball as a whole said no to paying a third assistant so now they get volunteer assistants that don't need to be paid and my fomo is real and it's not even a fomo really because i worked with 
I worked with former Major League All-Stars and award winners when I worked with the Travelers as, as Major League coaches, guys like Mike Hampton uh, and Tim Bogar. Uh, so, uh, but it, it, the, the Razorbacks, and I, Arkansas doesn't need one of their former All-Stars to come back and be a volunteer assistant coach. They don't need that extra spotlight on them because they have, you know, a former MVP that's working with the catchers, working with the shortstops. But I guess a little, a little bit of FOMO that you don't have a major leaguer on the staff. Although I will say you had a major, you had Wes Johnson come off the staff and elevated to the major leagues. And from everything I know about, about Nate Thompson and, and Matt Hobbs, these guys could be very successful professional baseball coaches. They're paid better in college and they probably have more of an impact too. Phil, real quick before I go into mine, if there's a former Razorback baseball player that you would want on the staff additionally, if they did add that third assistant coach, who would it be? Oh, man. I mean, actually, Bubba Carpenter, my, my, my partner in the booth, is already a coach. And I, I don't think he's ever looking to get into college coaching, but he's got the ability to communicate and connect with with today's you know high school player and 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 college player uh and and obviously has that love for the Razorbacks and and the pedigree of a guy who played great at Arkansas and had a a fruitful professional career including a cup of coffee in the bigs I I would I would go with him really I mean it's an easy way out but I know for a fact that Bubba's already a great coach I think he'd be great with college players too Bubba's a cool dude. We get along great. I'm not going to act like we've had a bunch of instances where we've run into each other, talked to each other, but the times I have talked to him, he seems like a cool dude. And based on what you're saying about his baseball acumen, I think that could be a be a good fit. All right, Phil, my last one I was joking with, uh, Derek Ruskin, host of Ruskin and Zach, along with Zach Arns, our drive program on ESPN Arkansas yesterday because – his stick for quite some time has been he he's more call it how he sees it. A lot of times he sees it in the negative line, and that's fine. Arkansas athletics has had a lot of periods throughout its history where things have gone wrong, coaches have gone awry, and a bunch of assortment of things. And it was funny to hear Ruskin yesterday be so positive. He let off his show with. What could happen if Arkansas go right? And I texted him. And I was like, "Will the real, will the will the real Derek Ruskin please stand up?" Because I've listened to him for countless number of years, and there's not a lot of positives that come out of his mouth. And I'm not again. I have a great relationship with the guys. We have a good rapport. He's a good dude, and I'm not dissing him by any means. It's just funny to him kind of go full 180 on the spectrum and be positive and be. Like try and point out good things that could happen for this football program because I think he has more of a pessimistic view on Arkansas football. And after a two and ten season, I don't blame him. But it was just funny yesterday. So Phil, I got a little FOMO. I wasn't in studio to hear that and listen to him and watch him live because I'm sure I'm not gonna say he was cringing talking like that yesterday, but it definitely wasn't in his wheelhouse the way he was talking. What it seemed to be all pauses about the Razorback football team. Jeff's Clubhouse has the best brunch in town every Saturday from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. Bottomless mimosas, an endless buffet, and so much more. 2801 Old Greenwood Road in Fort Smith. More Halftime Pod coming at you. I wanted to Kevin McPherson, who actually just interviewed Scotty Thurman. He joins us now. Kevin, good to have you on, man. I'm remiss that Phil's not in the studio right now. I understand he had to get catch a fly, but... Good to be on with you, sir. All right, so let's talk Scotty Thurman. You actually just got off the phone with him in about a 25-minute interview. He came on our morning show. Uh, the biggest takeaway for me is when he talked about what happened with Eric Musselman in the Arkansas basketball program. Now, it was assumed, and we heard stuff, you heard stuff, I heard stuff, that he wasn't going to get his assistant job that he currently had with Mike Anderson's staff, but he was going to still be kept on just in his former role what did you think about that? And I'm wondering, do you think there's hard feelings there between Eric Musselman and Scotty Thurman? Well, you know, that's a good question. Uh, only a person knows how they really feel uh, under the surface because these guys, when Scotty Thurman said the right things, I listened to the interview he did with you guys just a few minutes ago as I did prep work to come on. And then in my own interview, you know, he talked about it from a professional standpoint. And when, you know, he described it as no hard feelings. It's the same thing he told you guys. And you know, I'm going to take him at his word. Uh, you know, you hear things behind the scenes, and I think it's naturally disappointing if you've, if you've arrived at a certain place as a college assistant coach to take a step back, especially when you factor in what he's meant to Razorback basketball as a player, the fact that he's embraced the state, 
Uh, you know, he lived in Little Rock for a time being, and his son played uh, high school football in Little Rock before he came back to Northwest Arkansas to be a part of that program, and then he worked his way up. So I think when you factor everything in, you can understand the idea that, listen, I'm not at a point in my career and where I feel like I fit into this Razorbacks program where I'm re- willing to take that step back, and I understand that. By the same token, Eric Musselman is the new head coach at Arkansas. He's being They replaced a coach who they thought wasn't getting the job done, and so for Eric Musselman to get the job done, he's got to do what he's got to do. He's got to bring in the people that he, he thinks fit him best to move the program forward. So I think if you look at from a professional standpoint, uh, objectively, no matter how uh, – you know, uh, nostalgic your feelings are with what Scotty Thurman has done for the program. If you look at it objectively and from a business standpoint, I think uh, the right decisions were made on both sides. I think Scotty Thurman, uh, being now the head coach at a storied program in Little Rock, and gets to come back to what he told me is his second home. Ruston, Louisiana is his first home. That's where he's from. And he said Little Rock's really his second home. So he, he loves Fayetteville and Northwest Arkansas, but he feels like he's in a way it's a homecoming. He's going to a prestigious program. Whether or not he, there's some hard feelings there, you know that'll be something for Scotty Thurman to address another day, maybe in his memoirs. But I think, I, th- I actually think this is a good opportunity for him, and I think Arkansas's moving in, in a positive direction as, as well under Eric Musselman. I'll give him credit because when he came on this show, he was professional as as he could be as possible. And, and Kevin, I, I'm going to be honest. I think you and I both know there's you. It, it's not maybe he's not angry at him, but you can't not have, be a little irritated by the fact that you're the guy that hit the biggest shot in Razorback basketball history and you felt like maybe you had earned that job to that point and it didn't didn't seem like it worked out and so with this relationship down the road was it Kevin was it Flanagan that kind of was the Ole Miss alum that kind of directed kids for Ole Miss or was the guy his predecessor at Parkview right right so Al Flanagan uh played at Southern Arkansas and you know he coached under under Charles Ripley they won state titles then when Ripley moved on Flanagan took over that program and his sons uh, West played at Auburn at the same time that, that, that Scotty was playing at Arkansas. They competed against each other. Jason Flanagan, the younger brother, Al's uh, other son, went to Ole Miss and played there. He's now the, the head coach at at, um, um, at at the school that Macon played at in JUCO. It just slipped my tongue for a minute. Um, but anyway, uh, so there's so much family ties with the Flanagans and some friction with Arkansas because um, over the years we saw some of that play out. And some guys that Arkansas wanted – uh, they really weren't in the mix for. We saw that get better when Mike Anderson came back with the, with Al Flanagan and the Flanagan family. We saw uh, guys like, uh, even though um, uh, Anton Beard technically finished at North Little Rock, he, came, he started through that Parkview program. You look at Ethan Henderson, Khalil Garland. You look at some of the guys that came through there and ended up being Razorback. So I think that got better. It remains to be seen now that Scotty Thurman's running Parkview. But when I talked to Thurman interviewing him, he's looking at this like, man, I'm not here to advocate for anybody. I love the University of Arkansas, but I understand how important it is to guide young people to do what's best for them. And so their families will make those decisions ultimately, and he's not going to steer anybody. And I think that's a, I think that's a healthy way to probably to look at it, yeah. especially with all his background, not only on the court, but in player development, lifestyle development, when he had those roles, I think a big part of helping people is helping them see what's best for themselves, not just trying to point them or steer them. Yeah, and I thought he was pretty spot on when he was talking about it's about these kids, it's about what's best for these kids, and regardless if that's the University of Arkansas or not, I know not all fans in the state would see it that way. It's about what's best for their direction, so we'll see what happens there. Ken McPherson, go ahead. (laughs) No, it's Holmes Community College. I couldn't spit that out. Okay. That's where Daryl Megan played, and that's where Jack, uh, down in Mississippi. Go ahead. I got you. De- uh, Kevin McPherson, hogville.net, Pit Trail Nation, our guest here on Halftime. So you, we're talking about kind of how it's playing out. When you look at Parkview over the years, you, you mentioned some of the guys recently, Easton Henderson, Cleo Garland, Anton Beard played it before he went to North Little Rock. Probably their most notable alum is Derek Fisher. There's been some talent that's come out of that school. You think about on the football side of things, it's probably Warren is one of the schools that you're just like, man, there's just D1 talent that seems to come out of there all the time. And Kevin, if you you know high school basketball in this state uh, extremely well, if you look if you compare Parkview to other schools in this state in terms of high school basketball talent that transitions to the D1 level, where does it rank compared to other high schools in this state? Well, that's interesting. You know, because Central and Hall have had their share of players. I mean, when you go back through the years of even Little Rock Hall, that's where Sidney Moncrief played. That's where Bobby Portis played. There's been a great – but Tim Scott, who played the Razorbacks, Ali Freeman. And there's been so many more. I mean, they're great players that, that uh, you know, Little Rock Hall's got a storied program. So it's almost like 
you have to throw an asterisk in because Central's had it too. I mean, Joe Johnson played at Central. You've had a lot of guys uh, that 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 came through that program. Um, Richard Scott that ended up playing at Kansas, and that Kansas team when he was a freshman beat Arkansas in the Elite Eight to get to the Final Four, and they went on to the title game uh, where they uh, th- that same season. Richard Scott at Little Rock Central, so you've got. A great track record in Little Rock basketball, but but it starts and ends really with Parkview at the end of the day. So many great players have come through there, and it's a and it's more consistent. I mean, just this past season, Al Flanagan, uh, Alan Flanagan, the grandson of the coach that just retired, and uh, is now at Auburn with his dad, where he's assistant coach to Bruce Pearl. He's got you know that was another that's an SEC uh, prospect coming out of Parkview. And so every year there's multiple Division One guys, and so I think that's the difference is that it's a more consistent. Than some of the other schools in terms of generating Division One and high major talent, and so when that's the case, obviously that that puts you up just a li- just at least a notch above the rest. There are some season when seasons obviously Parkview doesn't win the title every year, but it is the best program in the state. Not only in terms I think in uh, how good the teams are, but the individual players and where the what their ceiling is and where they end up. You think about the video you posted a couple months back when Hall was able to sweep sweep Parkview and they cut down the nets and they brought the brooms. How much is this rivalry going to be ramped up now that the Rustin Rifle, Scotty Thurman, is the head coach? Well, I think everybody's going to be looking at him and saying, okay, okay, so the big-time program's got a big-time coach and they're, they're, everybody's always going to want a piece of Parkview. And you're right, that's a big rivalry. That was kind of a shocking thing that went viral, that video, and uh, to, to come on the in high school basketball, you just don't see a lot of that. But I think it speaks to the fact that you know when you when you've got the rep that Parkview's got, uh, that's going to create uh, not only rivalry. Sometimes it gets intense, but it gets chippy. I mean, you go to these games, and I tweet this all the time in Little Rock, and I call it the five hundred one. There is not a dull night in this city when there's basketball being played. It is not not Tuesday night, not not Friday night, not on a Wednesday when they're ma- they're playing a makeup game because of a snow day. It's never, never a dull night because of that that kind of uh, those kind of rivalries. And when I talked to Scotty Thurman about that, he said, "Look, man, you don't have to sell me on it." He goes, "You know, I lived in Little Rock, and I've recruited this state and been at the college level." He understands that. He knows that conference. He's about to step into arguably the toughest conference in the state, and so it typically is. So yeah, I mean, it gets ratcheted up in those rivalries. It's going to be fun, man. This is going to be exciting because. You look at Central Arkansas, you've got Daryl Walker, a former All-American NBA player, coaching the Little Rock Trojans now, going into his second season. You've got Joe Klein on the bench over there at Little Rock Catholic. You've got Todd Day at Philander Smith. I mean, you've got, you've got guys that have, have been great players, and not only in the Razorbacks program, but they've come back and embraced the state. None of those guys are Arkansans. By, not, they're not native Arkansans, but they're Arkansans now. And I think it's a little fascinating. I think sometimes we're such a big football state that some of these stories get slept on a little bit, but now Scotty Thurman coming to Little Rock, Little Rock Parkview, there's more to talk about. Kevin, we got about 30 seconds, so be quick on this one. You're meeting up with Bobby Portis later today. What's he got going on coming up? Well, he's got, an, he, he's got a celebrity basketball game coming up that's going to help benefit his foundation that it's, that's fairly new, and we're going to talk about that later today on another program, and I'm going to get uh, do some work behind the scenes. I want to make sure he comes on your program to talk about that. I'm, a, I'm not going to spoil anything that he's got to say to sell it, but I'm going to get him in with you guys. And man, what a great guy! What an ambassador for basketball in Arkansas. And he, he's he's definitely the face, I think, of the program on the pro level for the Razorbacks.